In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I, will, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear, clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lightning on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. God. Do yourself a favor and keep those Bibles open if you don't, because I want you to be able to, to see some things as we talk about it. So we come to the season of Lent. <clears throat> and for those of you who are not familiar, as this is a, not something in the Bible, but just a practice within the church that started centuries ago. Lent is a 40-day journey, not counting Sundays, when we follow Jesus through his life up till his death and through his resurrection. It's been in the history of the church a time for contemplation, sort of a, a season for taking stock, uh, making sure that we prepare for Easter rather than have it just creep up on us and surprise us. Someone once wrote in terms of the practice of Lent that Lent is the church's springtime, a time when out of the darkness of sin's winter, a repentant empowered people emerges. And I think that's a good description. So if, as we undertake this journey of Lent, the, the first question, at least the question I always ask, is where are we going? <laughs> and where do, where do we start? And where we start is, as for Christians, it's always been the starting point of this journey that we take with Jesus has always been water. 
And so we begin our Lenten journey exploring the story of Jesus's coming out party. As we've turned to the Gospel of Matthew, we heard about John preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and Matthew's laid out his credentials for us. He is the one spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert. John's behavior, beyond how he's described as, as, a, as the, being an answer to prophecy, he actually, his behavior demonstrates that he's cut from the cloth of the prophets. Like those prophets, as you were hearing, his message is harsh, but it's very familiar. It's in many ways, after centuries of silence, the reinvention of a classic. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. In other words, what John is saying is, return to me. God is saying through John, return to me. Come back home. Recognize who your daddy is. Who's your father? Your true king. What John is in essence proclaiming on behalf of God is that God longs for a sincere relationship with his people. But John, unlike the prophets of old, isn't just proclaiming this idea. As you heard, he's not only proclaiming it, he's calling people to take the very first step back towards home, back towards God. He's calling people into the water to be baptized by him in the Jordan River. And as a symbol, you have to think for the people who are gathering, this is something that makes, takes them back to the grand story of Israel, especially back to the Exodus event. For a nation that's suffering in exile, has been for some time, gone through several empires, John calling people into the water is offering the people a powerful sign of God's deliverance. But as you heard, according to Matthew, and John also backs this up, and so does Luke in their Gospels, there are, are two reactions to what John is doing, two reactions to his ministry. Some, some pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem, continuing through the mountains by way of Jericho into the holy city, are hearing the music of old, the song of Isaiah, of the prophets, and they're crying out in recognition and getting down into the water. But there are others, most who come directly from Jerusalem, in fact, they're coming to investigate what all the fuss is about out in the middle of nowhere, and they're described as standing on the sidelines, on the banks of the Jordan, aloof, dismissive, even sniping a bit about John's reimagining of an oldie but a goodie. It's in this context, out in the wilderness, where John is working in the midst of divided opinions about, frankly, what John is doing, that Jesus begins to cross the threshold into his public ministry. He's 30 years old, but this is the very first time we witness Jesus taking the stage as an adult. And there's a significance to the waters that Jesus is coming to. This is no ordinary river. John has called the people to a specific place for a specific reason. This is a river, the Jordan, that has a history, one that flows through Israel's story and its rise as a nation. I mean, this is the river that generations before, priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant stood. And as they stood, the waters abruptly stopped so that a people, once in bondage, after a long, generations-long journey to freedom, finally could cross from the wilderness to the other side to the promised land. These are the waters. This is the river where Elijah struck with his staff so that he and Elisha could cross. And if you know this story, when they got on the other side, Elijah passes the prophetic baton to Elisha as he's whisked away to heaven with blazing horses and a chariot of fire. These are the waters that Elisha later will tell the leprous Naaman to go to, to wash himself in order to be cleansed. These are the waters. This is the river that King David crosses many a time before a decisive battle. So as Jesus wades into the Jordan, what I want you to realize is that this, 
These are waters that are clearly steeped with significance. But even in the midst of all that, the question that should pop into your mind, if it maybe never has before, is what is Jesus doing? Why does Jesus get baptized at all? I mean, when we speak about the meaning of baptism in the church, when we talk about the significance of it, the predominant understanding that we have of the sacrament is that it's about repentance. It's about turning back towards God. It's about turning back towards God in order to receive forgiveness. It's about, hence the water, the washing away of our sins. Well, given this understanding, shouldn't we naturally ask, why would Jesus need to experience that? And if you never thought of that question, just so you know, it's not just something I'm making up. Apparently, I'm not the first person to think of this because if you heard as it was read, <laughs> there's a little family misunderstanding about this whole matter. As Jesus is approaching the Jordan, ready to get into the water, the baptizer, John, challenges his baptism-seeking cousin. You heard him say, he challenges him and says, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus insists with both John, and by extension, he insists with us, as he urges, let it be so now. Let it be so. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus' response here is key to our understanding not only what he is doing, but why he is doing it. This, Jesus says, is to fulfill all righteousness, all righteousness, right relationship. It's about being right in terms of relationship. Jesus is using covenant language. Jesus is connecting what he's about to do with the fulfillment of something God promised to do, a covenant that he made long ago with a man named Abraham. Several months ago, we looked at that covenant. We looked at that relationship with Abraham. And among other things, remember that it was a promise that God made to reclaim all peoples, all nations, through the light of one single nation, Israel. It was a promise by God to identify with all humanity, to be in relationship with humanity, not in the absence of our disobedience, but despite it. God's covenant with Abraham was about identity. I am your God and you will be my people. And if you remember back when we looked at Abraham, you remember that God shows his amazing commitment to this promise by giving the gift of the letters of his name, Yahweh, the gift of the letters of his name to the names of Abram and Sarai so that they become Abraham and Sarah. God gives the gift of the letters of his name, but he does more than that. He also shows his commitment to this promise by he himself embracing a new name. He becomes the God of Abraham and then the God of Isaac and later the God of Jacob. What Jesus is doing here, when he says this is to fulfill all righteousness, in being baptized by John, Jesus is purposefully identifying himself with this covenant. Later on, Jesus will refer to himself as the Son of Man. And there's lots of meanings to this, but this idea of Jesus being the Son of Man, one of the titles for Jesus, is that Jesus is the representation of the identity of Israel, but he's also representative of all humanity. So, beloved, what I want you to see is what Jesus is doing here. Jesus' baptism is first and foremost about our identity. I mean, you heard what was read and we'll talk about it, but we don't read this and think that Jesus is surprised by what takes place here, right? Like Jesus suddenly goes, oh, I am? <laughs> Jesus knows who he is and he knows whose he is. What Jesus does here through this public act, and it's so important we see this, is he's revealing to us who we are. 
As Jesus enters the waters of our humanity and the skies are torn apart as it's described and a voice is heard from heaven, we need to pay close attention to what is being said because maybe offhandedly we think, well, that's nice that that was said about Jesus. But it's not just said about Jesus. It's said by, about Jesus through Jesus by extension to us. And so let's think about the simplicity of what's said and yet how profound it is. What is heard is, my son, my son. Those two words by implication implying a father is speaking. My son, this is my son. What this means is that contrary to how we often think and what we're often told, God is not a stranger to us. Some of us even say, well, God's not a stranger. God's my friend. No, no, God's even closer than that. God says, this is my son. This is my daughter. We are children of our father. And for many of us, we struggle with knowing who our dad is. We struggle at times at the absence of our father and God says, make no mistake, you are my son, you are my daughter. But more than that, this is my beloved son. God uses a term of affection. Beloved, I love you. This is my son whom I love. This is my daughter whom I love. The significance of this is that, again, contrary to how we often act and think, God desires us. Do you know how many people I encounter in the church who still have a mental picture in their mind that God just tolerates them? Okay, I'll let you in, but just stay over there. No, you are beloved. That's why I have intentionally incorporated the use of that word in my pastoral ministry. You hear me say that a lot. I don't say that to be, you know, that's my pastoral voice, beloved. <laughs> I say it because it's the predominant way that God speaks to us. We are beloved and it's important that that's continually reflected to us, that God does not just tolerate us. He desires us. This is my son, my daughter, my beloved son, my beloved daughter. I love you, but it's even better. In whom, in you, I am well pleased. How many of us live our entire lives just to hear someone say that they are not just ple they're pleased with us, let alone well pleased? And God cries out to Jesus and by extension to us, you are my child. You are my beloved child. In you I am well pleased. It is worth noting at this point, I think it's, we, can, we breeze by this, but it's significant. God the Father says this to Jesus the Son. He says, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He says I am well pleased to Jesus before Jesus has done any of the things that we remember and worship him for. In you I am well pleased before Jesus has done a single miracle, before Jesus has had an incre one incredible teaching, before Jesus has gone to the cross, before Jesus has done anything, God says, in you I am well pleased. And by extension, this is so important. This is reflecting to us a decision by our God, a declaration by our God that, that, that God says the same thing. Our Father says the same thing about us that has nothing to do with what we've done or what we haven't done. In you, I am well pleased. You know, we live in, in tough times, hard times. We talk about it a lot on Sunday, as we should. And it seems at times as though what we're dealing with is so complex. There's so many issues, so many elements to what we, what's going on. But in some respects, as complicated as things often appear to be, they can often be very, very simple and elemental. What I've just shared with you of understanding what's said to Jesus is being said to us is maybe something you learned in Sunday school. Okay, I know I'm God's child. I know he loves me, and I know he's well-pleased in me. But, but what I want to suggest to you, beloved, is knowing it and living it are two different things. 
We live in a world that's very, very complex, but in many ways the complexities that we often, in, at the level we often talked of, can be reduced to something as simple as the hardest questions of all that we face that make life complicated, the hardest questions of all we face are, who am I? Who am I? What, who or what defines me as a person? Who or what makes me who I am? It's those questions that are unanswered by many of us or are answered wrongly that create the complications that we face. Who am I? Who or what defines who I am? Who or what makes me who I am? I want to bring back to you the slide, covenant and kingdom again, because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about covenant, that triangle of, again, of, of how our identity is shaped. What we learn from this moment in Jesus' life is reinforcing what we've talked about previously, is that our identity, our identity is primarily shaped by what the Father says about us, not the reverse. We are secure in who we are through the assurance of whose we are. We are secure in who we are through the assurance of whose we are. To push this further, to appreciate how profound and significant this is, let's briefly consider the contrast between what's revealed here by Jesus to how we generally tackle the problem of personal identity apart from God. Apart from God, with God out of the picture, we hold that each and every individual has the following rights. Apart from God, we hold that each and every individual has the following rights. One, each and every individual has the right to self-discovery. I have the right to find out who I am. Two, each and every individual has the right to self-definition. I have the right to define who I am. If I don't like what I discover, I can redefine myself. I have the right to define who I am. Number three, the right of self-determination. I have the right to be what I want to be, to do what I want to do. These three rights, if we were in another context right now, you'd be clapping. You'd be like, heck yeah, that's right. Right of self-determination, self-definition, self-discovery. Those are my rights. We might even wed that somewhat with our nation. That's what it means to be an American. Beloved, as we proclaim that these are our rights, rights that many of us would almost treat as sacred, we need to see that, interestingly, the Bible, the biblical perspective on identity is very different. It's a total contrast from what I've just outlined to you, though many of us would celebrate it would fight to defend it. The biblical view is that God, as the creator of human life, defines what it means to be human. God, as our Father, determines what is right and good for his human creatures in general and authors the personality, potentials, and destiny of each human person in particular. So in general, God defines what's right and good about being human beings together. God sets those boundaries in general. And then particularly, God defines the personality, the potentials, and the destiny, as we saw in Esther, of each human person in particular. The significance of this is, those three rights are not ours. Those three rights that we claim, that we get pretty fired up about, don't exist according to our Father. What does exist, what is our right, we have, according to our Father, not only the right, but the duty to realize God's defining purpose for him or her. 
We have the right and the duty to not only realize, but defend our defining purpose as a human society, as human beings. So that means that we have the right and the duty to stand up for what it means to be human as God defines it as a people in general. But we also have the right and the responsibility to live into who God created us to be, how he has called and shaped us for such a time as this, like Esther. What difference does this make? Can I live in both worlds? What why does this matter? The Bible, again, draws this out. Paul perhaps says it best in his letter to the Romans. Here's the deal. If we're not shaped or transformed by the identity our Creator, our Father, our Redeemer gives us, if we're not shaped or transformed by the identity our Father gives us, then we will be conformed to the identity offered to or put upon us by the world. Paul will write, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What he's getting at is, is if our identity is not shaped by what's given to us by our Father, we will be conformed to what is given to us or put upon us by the world. And this is huge, because as we know, a positive, well-formed identity leads to well-exercised living. The beautiful English word for what I'm talking about is flourishing. It's an awesome word, flourishing. Flourishing is living life as God intended it. Flourishing is when people know who they are, and as in knowing who they are, they know what they should do. In that knowing who they are and whose they are, they know what they should do. And so a flourishing person has a confident sense of being that leads to a robust becoming. Beloved, how many of us here today, you don't have to show hands, how many of us here today would describe ourselves as flourishing? How many of us would describe ourselves as flourishing? Big word, a lot of punch there. Wouldn't most of us, don't most of us describe ourselves as settling? You know, and we got some young people in here, and right now you'd be like, settling? Heck no, I got my whole life in front of me. I ain't settling. I got the whole world in front of me. But it's interesting what we tell our children. We'll come back to that, but there's going to come a point, because as adults, there's some, even if we, we think we flourished, flourishing's supposed to continue throughout our lives, but we've all adopted this idea that at some point you, start, you stop flourishing, and you just have to start settling. Beloved, our Father's desire for us, this is what's significant about what's happening here with Jesus. Our Father's desire for our lives is for not, us not just to settle. But this is what happens when our identity is shaped apart from God. My brothers and sisters, this is the lie of self-determination. And it is a lie. Those three right, rights that we claim are built on a lie. There is no self-made person. It doesn't exist. It's a myth. No one, I don't care who you are, shapes his own destiny. We are told the opposite in our stories and songs. We puff ourselves up and think, I'm in control of my own destiny, but it's bogus. You want to know how it's bogus? Get a group of people together and ask them to, to, to answer the question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? We get into a room, we can't decide whether it's nature or nurture, and if nothing else, that should blow open the idea that we're self-made. The, the idea of self-determination is a myth. You will not determine your own destiny. There are all kinds of things that shape you that you will conform to whether you admit it or not. 
And so the choice is, are you going to be conformed or are you going to be transformed? There's this great Native American legend about a brave who found an eagle's egg and put it into the nest of a prairie chicken. The eaglet hatched with the brood of chicks and grew up with them. All of his life, he thought he was a prairie chicken. So he did what prairie chickens did. He scratched at the dirt for seeds and for insects to eat. He clucked and he cackled. He flew around in a brief thrashing of wings with a flurry of feathers that only got him a few feet off the ground. Because after all, that's how prairie chickens were supposed to fly. Years passed, and the eagle grew very old. Until one day, he saw a magnificent bird far above, far above him in the cloudless sky, hanging with graceful majesty on powerful wind currents. It soared with scarcely a beat of its strong golden wings. What a beautiful bird, the eagle exclaimed to a prairie chicken who was his neighbor. What is it? Well, that's an eagle, the chief of the birds, the neighbor clucked. But don't give him a second thought. You could never be like him. So the eagle never gave it a second thought. He died thinking he was a prairie chicken. The eagle, made to soar in the skies, was conditioned by his surroundings, by what the world told him to stay earthbound. Therefore, he pecked at seeds and he chased insects. Rather than discovering, realizing his full potential as an eagle, he settled for what the world told him he could be. He conformed to what the world, his circumstances, told him that he was. He never flourished. He never soared like the eagle he was, even though that was his real identity. Beloved, what we see in Jesus is this perfect relationship with his father. And because we see this perfect relationship with the Father, it's not a coincidence that we see Jesus exercising this responsibility of perfect representation of the Father's reign. You can't represent what you don't know. If you don't know who you are, you can't represent. Jesus knows who he is, and out of that identity, out of that relationship, he bears the responsibility of the kingdom. Covenant leads to kingdom. Relationship leads to responsibility. Identity leads to representation. This is the only way it works. If we don't think of ourselves as children of our Father, if we don't embrace the fact that we are subjects of the King of Kings, we will soon, consciously or unconsciously, live in practice as rebels. If we don't understand that our salvation from Jesus comes out of our identity in Christ, do you know what we're liable to do? We're liable to turn salvation into a possession. We're liable to turn salvation into an insurance policy, as we've often talked about, a ticket to ride. But it's even more than that. Some of us will say, well, I, you know, it's not just an insurance policy. It's not just a ticket to ride. I'm a part of a church. I'm a, I'm a part of this community. But beloved, it's being saved through our identity in Christ is not just an affiliation with Jesus either. It's not just joining a club or an association. It's not just saying, hey, I'm saved because you know what? I became a member at Grace and I came for 20 years and I was there. And then when I moved, I went to another church and I came every Sunday and I sat in the pew and I helped out with kids. And I went in the kitchen, they needed people. Awesome, great, awesome community. But that doesn't mean you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Beloved, you see that the thing is, and many of us, this is what we've been taught. Maybe this is where we need to have it deconstructed. Many of us speak and act 
as if becoming a Christian is assuming a new identity. That all of a sudden when we give our lives to Christ, we suddenly have to com completely change who we are. We have to reinvent ourselves. But salvation is more than putting on a new pair of clothes. It's more than wearing your Sunday best. It's more than just mirroring the behavior of other Christians. And for many of us, that's kind of what we did. We accepted Jesus into our heart and all of a sudden we, you know, we're Christians now. So what do other Christians do? Oh, is that what they wear? Okay, that's what I'll wear. Oh, they have a Bible. I'll get a Bible too. What Bible do you have? Okay, I'll get that Bible too. Oh, will you pray? You pray like this? Okay, I'll pray like that too. Again, I'm not saying that learning those things is bad. I'm saying, but if we're simply mirroring what other Christians do, that doesn't mean we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Being in relationship with Jesus Christ isn't acting like a Christian as if we're putting on a costume. Being in a relationship with Jesus Christ is being mentored by Jesus Christ. Where Jesus is speaking into your life. Jesus is the first and last person you go to. You don't talk to anybody else do you talk to Jesus. You're not listening to anybody else do you listen to Jesus. Jesus is your Lord and Savior, as we like to say. Not past tense, present tense and future tense. With Jesus, God our Father isn't calling us to just live out of blind acceptance. Through the person of Christ, our Father is revealing to us who we truly are. So we're not gaining a new identity when we embrace Christ. We're embracing our true identity when we accept Jesus Christ. It's about realizing our true identity. Think about the shift that that makes. If, if accepting Christ, embracing Christ, is realizing our true identity, who we really are, then the implication means that all of our other previous identities have been false. And honestly, that's one way to understand the problem of sin. The one way, to, one way to understand the problem of sin in our world is that we're all living under false identities. We're all living under assumed names all our lives. It's the triangle backwards. The names that we put on ourselves, the identities we try to make fit. Here's the, the mind-blowing insight of Jesus' baptism. We think we know what it means to be human. You want proof of that? You know when we screw up and we make mistakes? You know when we do engage in sin? You know what we say casually? Oh, we're only human. We don't know what human is. Jesus comes to show us what it truly means to be human. He comes to show us who we truly are, but we get it backwards and we think, oh, that's just how we are. We think we're a prairie chicken and we're an eagle. <laughs> Jesus comes to show us what being human is truly all about. Have you ever thought of that? And I think that perhaps this is most striking, the fact that we're not thinking about it, we're not sitting in it, in the reality of the church that we're in right now. I am pleased to see that there are some adolescents in here, but you know as well as I do, more and more our teenagers are disappearing from the church. And there's all kinds of reasons, but let me give you one of the number one reasons why that's happening. It's because we as adults are embracing and teaching them that their identity is built on rights they don't have. We're telling them that they have the right to define who they are for themselves. We're telling them they have the right to discover who they are. We're telling them they have the right to determine who they are. We're telling them something that's a lie. And in fact, we're not just telling them. As parents, when we have our kids and they go, I don't want to go to church. I don't want to be a part of it. We go, well, it's your right to decide for yourself, so I'll just let you stay at home. And you know why we do that? We do that, and I'll acknowledge it. I grew up with it too, because we grew up with parents who basically said, hey, you know what? I'm bigger than you. I'm stronger than you. You're going to go to church. You're going to open up your Bible. You're going to memorize these verses. The thing our parents didn't realize about that approach is at one point we're going to get bigger than them. And all of a sudden we're going to go, no, I'm not doing it anymore. 
And now our parents, and we don't want to repeat the mistakes of our parents, lament because our children have fallen away from the church. So we think we've got a better idea. We'll let children decide for themselves. Is right. Let me give you a late-breaking news flash, and you can come and talk to me about this personally. I'll take any pushback you want on this. Get your kids to church. Bring them to church. They're bored. They don't like it. Who cares? Who cares? Please tell me any one of you is going to get before the heavenly gates and go, you know what? Is it cool in there? Because if I'm bored, I'm really not going to want to go. <laughs> now, hold up. I'm not just saying to drag them here like your parents did. Say, well, I'm bigger than you, stronger than you. Well, even if you're bigger than me, you're still coming to church. So come on. Here's an idea. Bring them because they're in a formative stage where they don't know. It's about planting seeds. It's like a homing beacon that's going to go off later. But here's the deal. Here's where maybe we can learn something. You know why your children, our children, don't want any part of it? It's because they don't see a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Your kids are not going to embrace Jesus if, if they don't see you embracing Jesus. If they don't see a relationship with Christ in your life, then they're not going to have one in their life. It's like introducing them to friends in your family. If you're not reflecting how you are being mentored by Jesus Christ, then how, your kids are going to ultimately go, well, I'm just going to do what you do, except I'm going to find different clothes to wear. I'm going to find a different philosophy to embrace. If you're not living out of your identity, if you don't know who you are, you can't represent it to your kids. So I ask you, as Christians in this world in which we live, what do you think is more important? Do you think it's more important for our teenagers to find themselves? Or do you think it's more important for our teenagers to find out who Jesus is? I think it's more important for them to find out who Jesus is, but they can't if we don't know who he is. If we don't know who we are in him. Because it's right relationship. Don't miss this. The effect of true identity that prepares Jesus for this great responsibility that comes next, representing his Father's will upon the earth. From the very start of his ministry, we witness that Jesus comes to his Father on his Father's terms. All that Jesus does thereafter is in tandem with the covenant. The kingdom flows out of the covenant, out of his relationship with his Father. Go through the Gospels and highlight the numbers of times Jesus says, I only do what my Father tells me to do. I only do the will of the Father. I'm only doing what the Father tells me to do. He shows us that out of that identity, the kingdom comes. But Jesus' journey to the cross, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Isn't a journey of passive action where he just kind of goes, well, I just got to do what my dad says. We don't see Jesus letting the circumstances wash over him and just become resigned to his fate. Bad roll of the dice for me, going to the cross. You don't see Jesus let others define who he is, though lots of people try. They try to define who he is and try to alter him from his course again and again. And Jesus will have none of it because he knows who he is based on whose he is. And that's why when you read the scriptures and if you haven't read the gospels, read them again. Isn't it amazing how Jesus just stands out? He just pops off the page. You hear Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John try to describe it when people are like, we've never heard anybody teach like this. Nobody's ever worked with this kind of authority before. And we go, oh, that's because he's God. No! No! It's because he's the perfect human being living out of his identity in God. He's flourishing. He's flourishing. He transcends the conformity of the brokenness of this world. We say, you know, theologically, Jesus was without sin. You want to know what being without sin looks like? Flourishing. He's not conformed to the brokenness of this world. He's not held back. 
And it's all because, again, he lives out of his identity given to him by his father. Beloved, our father's desire is for us to live the same kind of life. On the one hand, we have Jesus as close as our hearts, but on the other hand, we act like Jesus is this far away and farther. God wants us to live this kind of life, to have the same kind of security, the same kind of security, rather than posing and pretending. And that's why Jesus comes to us. That's why Jesus is baptized, so that we can finally realize and accept and live out of who we truly are, out of whose we really are. As the waters of baptism roll over him, as the baton is passed from messenger to Messiah, the one who prepared the way yields to the one who embodies and shows forth in his fullness just how far the father will go to provide and restore his children. What God does is to go to the farthest possible lengths to assure us that we are his no matter how much we mess up or how much we're messed up. He does this so that we can be free. Free from a life of conformity. Free from a life of living that triangle backwards. And let me tell you, the baggage piles up when we try to continually prove ourselves, justify ourselves, or have other people pile stuff on us. Jesus frees us from the accumulation of all that baggage, all those strings attached. He dies to all, he assumes and dies to all of our false identities so that we can be free. So that we can live out of a different kind of strength a different set of muscles rather than the ones we use to strain and strive and struggle to always prove ourselves. What Jesus comes to do is to instill in us the courage, the courage born of recognizing the path to which we are called. He wants to give us the confidence to yield to whatever that path leads us, to be true to who we are and to go wherever it takes us without fear and without worry. Jesus wants us not only to know who we truly are, but he wants us to know what we're truly capable of as God's children. What's intended for us, beloved? What's intended for us is something more than a destination. Salvation is more than a destination. Salvation is more than something we pull out when we're about to breathe our last breath and say, okay, I'm in. Resurrection, we sang about it. Our second song, resurrection is a way of life. Jesus identifies with us through his baptism, and through our baptism we identify with him. He calls us into the water, into our true identity, the intimacy of being called brothers and sisters with him, sons and daughters of our father, his father. And he does this. He calls us to know our true identity so that we can become his voice in calling other people to join us in the water. Part of our baptismal liturgy is that in baptism we are gathered and sent forth. We are sent forth in ministry as God's own ministry of transformation, reconciliation, healing, and salvation of the world come through us. Here we are again. How is this possible? How is this possible? You know, we don't talk about it in church. I brought it up several times and no one follows up with me. That Jesus makes this outlandish statement. You are going to do even greater things than I have. And we go, no, not possible. That's Jesus. And yet Jesus says it will be so. How is it possible? Because what we see here when Jesus is baptized is that Jesus is the portal. Do you notice what ha- how Matthew describes the Holy Spirit here? The Holy Spirit remains upon Jesus, we're told. This is significant because the Holy Spirit doesn't remain on anything except at creation. After creation and after everything gets messed up, the Holy Spirit kind of comes and goes. Shows up, something gets accomplished, gone. But the Holy Spirit descends and remains on Jesus, Matthew tells us. This permanence is John's way or Matthew's way of telling us that Jesus is the conduit. Jesus becomes the way between this world and the next. 
Jesus is the contact point, if you will, where heaven and earth intersect. Through the Holy Spirit being upon Jesus, Jesus becomes the catalyst for unleashing the authority and power of the kingdom of God. And that's why we see consistently from this point on in the Gospels that everywhere Jesus is, is the authority and power of the kingdom of God. Everywhere you see Jesus is the authority and power of the kingdom of God. Everything that's present in heaven, if Jesus is there, is now present on earth. What do we see? Forgiveness of sins. That's not possible. It's possible because Jesus is there. Healing of the sick. That's not possible. It is possible. Jesus is there. Deliverance from demonic possession. That's not possible. Oh, yeah, it is possible. Jesus is there. Freedom from captivity and all injustice. Yep, Jesus is there. The full authority and power of the kingdom is available to Jesus. And beloved, when we identify with Jesus, when we live out of who we truly are, then the kingdom of God is within us. That same authority and power seeks to work through us. Ah, that was then. That was then. No, it's now. Covenant leads to kingdom. Relationship leads to representation. Beloved, if we, if we don't believe this, and why are we here? Jesus is still present, right? Jesus is still present because the work of the Holy Spirit is the life of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus in relationship with Christ, then the Holy Spirit lives in you. And yet we live in a world where many people believe in God. Awesome. We live in a world where lots of people call themselves Christians. But what the world needs what the world is waiting for, what best reflects the kingdom of God, are followers of Christ. And if anything should mark the lives of those who know and are flourishing out of their true identity as blood-bought, redeemed, beloved children of the Father, if anything should mark it, it should be joy. Joy. Joy in our Father. Joy in His works. Joy in our Son. In his son, our redeemer, joy in his world. And let me ask you, ask your non-Christian friends, see if joy makes even the top five descriptors of the body of Christ. Where is our joy? Where's our joy? Because joy is the starting point. Joy comes out of that flourishing of knowing who you truly are. But if joy's there, guess what comes after joy? Power. Because power is the expression of our identity. And yet we live in a church, we live in a world where many people know the powerful works of Jesus. We will celebrate them throughout Lent, but not many see them personally. We live in a world where many know of the miraculous displays of God's power through human vessels in the Bible, but such is hardly the case today. Why? Many of us will say, well, because that's, that was then, like I said. But it's now. The reason why we're not seeing it, the reason why we're not experiencing the kingdom the way that we see it described in the scriptures is because of our resistance to Jesus. And that's what we confront every year at Lent. Where are we still resisting Jesus? Because, beloved, the power of God, the power of God, the power of the kingdom will always flow through the pathway of least resistance. If I got any engineers in the house, I think I've got this right. This spiritual principle is something that we see exercised in the physics of water and electricity flow. Water flowing downhill will take the path of least resistance, just as electricity will flow through a circuit. The power of God will flow through the vessel with the least resistance. The reason why Jesus jumps off the page, you just see power and authority just bursting out of him, is because Jesus represents, for the first time 
ever the only human vessel with no resistance. And therefore, you see the authority and power of the kingdom flowing freely and unhindered through him. And everyone doesn't know what the heck to make of it. We yield. We can yield and experience that same authority and power of the kingdom. That's not Pastor Chris. That's Jesus. We can wield that same authority and power. But in order to wield it, we have to live out of our identity. We have to live our lives in relationship to Jesus. Guys, we can't just keep name dropping Jesus. Did you see that with John? Do you see how John tries to address that before Jesus comes? Do you remember, that? No, not, do you remember the part I'm talking about? When the people on the sidelines, and why are they on the sidelines? They're on the sidelines because they're name dropping Abraham. <laughs> We're not getting into the water. Oh my gosh. We're not going <laughs> to. I don't know what John is doing here, but we know who we are. We, we belong to Abraham. And John pointedly turns and says, do not think for a second that you can say you have Abraham as your father. And how many Christians do we have who are like, oh, well, I made that decision a long time ago and I'm, I know how it works. He's in my heart, so I don't need any of this other stuff. I'll just wait until my time comes. Do you honestly think that, do you not remember the scripture where Jesus is going to turn and say, hmm, I never knew you. John says something else that's interesting. John says in response, when he says, don't say you can keep having Abraham as your father. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Real easy for us to hear that as, oh, that means I got to do stuff. I got to earn my identity. But what John is saying, which Jesus will later echo when he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, is reflect your true identity. You are what you eat. Beloved, we are in a time, a year, that the church has set aside. It should be every day of our lives where we are allowed, we're invited to confront, confront the source, sources of resistance in our lives, the sources of resistance to our true identity in Christ. These next few weeks will blow by, but it is an opportunity for us to deal with unacknowledged, unresolved fear, anxiety, unbelief, Anger, unforgiveness, impatience, unkindness, hostility, because these are all forces that dampen the power of the Holy Spirit, the authority and power of the kingdom, the flow of the love of God that desires to be released through us. Here's the thing, in confronting us with our true identity, why Jesus is baptized is he wants to expose and remedy those pieces of resistance in our lives. That's what Lent's all about. And yet, for many of us, we just keep repeating Lent and missing it. I'm not going to ask, but I encountered the, uh, over the last couple of days a number of people who are fasting. I met one woman who was like fasting like five things. Chocolate, coffee, I mean, like five things. And when I'm asking people, why are they fasting, which is a practice that's been a part of the church, here's the number one reason I get. Well, it's going to be better for me. What? This isn't, some, this isn't the Christian diet program. <laughs> this isn't the time of the year where the church suddenly decides, well, okay, I'm going to work on all that stuff I need to work on. And then the second answer is, well, I really want to show that I'm serious about Jesus. I really want to, I really want to show how committed I am to Christ. And again, this is where we're falling back into the trap. We think we're proving ourselves to God. Hear those simple words again. You are my son, my daughter, my beloved son and daughter, and you I am well pleased. The reason why the church throughout its history has embraced fasting is not as a diet program and not to prove ourselves to Jesus or to God. The reason why fasting has been a practice in the life of the church, which is maybe why you've never embraced it, is because what fasting is about is saying to Jesus, I invite you in. I'm letting you have access to deal with the resistance in my life. I'm laying before you the things that are getting in the way of my living out of my identity in you. 
And you want to know what a difference that makes, that, that shift? <laughs> Maybe this applies to you. Do you think there's a problem that if at Lent we fast and then next year at Lent we're fasting for the same thing? If we're truly allowing Christ to deal with the resistance in our lives, if we truly are giving Jesus permission, that resistance will be broken. Who are you? It's the title of this sermon. That's the question of Lent. Who are you? You don't have to come up with your own answer. Who are you? You are beloved. You are a beloved son and daughter of your heavenly father. In you, he is well pleased. You are beloved. That's what the voice from heaven proclaimed as the baptismal waters of the Jordan rolled off Jesus' body. You are beloved. That's the name that Jesus would give to all those who he met who were desperate for healing, for inclusion, for hope. You, I, we are beloved. It's the word that echoes throughout the ages. Every time we are drenched in the waters of baptism, it's the revelation of our true identity that we are beloved children of our Heavenly Father. In us, he is well pleased. The question is, are we going to live out of our true identity? Or are we going to have another Lent, and this is the stereotypical Lent in the church, are we going to have another Lent, another 40 days, where what we do is we follow Jesus as a spectator? We cheer him on as, man, look at those miracles. Wow, look at that teaching. Wow, look at all the stuff he does. Wow, look at him go to the cross. Yay, Jesus. He wins one again for our team. All right. That's Lent, right? Lent is we sit, we watch. Man, look at Jesus go. (laughs) Or are we going to live out of our identity and follow Jesus not as a spectator, but follow Jesus as disciples? Getting in the water. Going into the wilderness with him. Stop settling. Discovering embracing who we really are in Christ, allowing Jesus, giving him permission to deal with our resistance, yielding before the authority and power of the kingdom that looks to be unleashed in us, realizing what we are truly capable of. Beloved, if we are willing to do that, to yield in that way, I guarantee you, we will be a different people come Easter Sunday. It's a different experience when you're on the field rather than sitting in the stands. I want to invite you to close this sermon to join me in an affirmation of faith. We'll have a different one every week, but this is just a way, and if you don't want to say it, you don't have to say it, but it's a way of affirming what you've heard God say through me, through the scriptures, in the midst of it all. A way of affirming our decision, our choice to follow Jesus. We believe in a God who is relentlessly passionate about his creation. Say it with me if you want. A pursuing father who does not wait for us to find ourselves, but comes seeking his prodigal children and calling us home by another way. We believe in Jesus of Nazareth as the emissary of God's reign, that when he invites us to follow, Christ also gives us the power to become, both in creed and deed, people of the covenant and the kingdom. We believe in the Holy Spirit by whom Jesus still comes to us, calling us to live out of our identity in him, to live out our responsibility to his kingdom. We seek to follow Jesus into an obedience that is true liberty and to a humble service which is the fruit of holy friendship. We believe in the church as the beloved, 
the body of Christ, the community of his disciples, challenged to respect and support one another through joys and tribulations as we travel the road toward the promised land of God's future. Because Christ has called us, in this we truly believe. Amen.